Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Mikel Del Rosario, Cultural Engagement Manager here at the Hendricks Center. And our topic today is Building the Case for Marriage. And my guest coming to us live via Skype is Dr. Sean McDowell. Sean is a professor of Christian apologetics at Biola University. He's been on the show before, so we we call them uh, uh, veterans of foreign wars at this point, or Dr. Bach does. (laughs) Thanks for being on the show, Sean. Mikel, thanks for having me back. This is a treat. Yeah, it's very cool to have you back as well. Well, we're talking about building the case for marriage, and I want to start out just by asking you to give us the backstory to how you even got involved in uh, talking about the biblical case for marriage in, in the public square and uh, helping to train other people on how to build that case. Yeah, I'm glad you started with that question, because if somebody went back maybe probably six years and said, hey, Sean, you're going to write a book on same-sex marriage and address cultural issues tied to homosexuality, I probably would have laughed and said, you got the wrong McDowell. <laughs> and and that's because I just had no intention of writing or weighing into this issue. It's such a contentious topic. Mm-hmm. No matter what you say, someone gets offended mm-hmm. and gets angry. And I just didn't have an interest in weighing into it. And then around 2013, I was actually working on my dissertation on the fate of the apostles, which we talked about earlier on this show. And around that time, it was leading up to the Obergefell decision, the Obergefell versus Hodges Supreme Court ruling decision in 2015. And it really felt to me as I traveled around the country, as I looked on social media, as I talked to Christians, there was kind of a sense of despair, like we've lost it's over. The Christian movement is ending. I mean, this is the sense that people Mm. had. And I thought, gosh, we really need some Christians with a little bit of courage, Mm -hmm. with some clarity Mm -hmm. to speak truth graciously. And since I was studying the apostles, I look at their lives. I mean, they were being beaten and thrown in prison and threatened. And they said, we're not going to stop talking about Jesus and all that entails because we fear God more than we fear men. You see that in Acts 4 and 5. As I looked at this topic, I thought there's not a lot written making a clear, compelling case for marriage from the Bible, from outside of Scripture. And uh, I didn't have time working on my dissertation, but I contacted a friend of mine, John Stone Street, from the Colson Center. Mm-hmm. And I just said, you know, I've been throwing this around. What do you think about doing this together? And it turned out that we wrote that book, Same-Sex Marriage, together. And I started writing on it, speaking on it, and kind of haven't looked back since. So, Sean, how do you see this tying into apologetics, into a defense of the Christian faith? Normally, people will think of things like arguments for the existence of God or answering the problem of evil, and this is, hasn't been on many people's radar, but it, it's starting to, to come up. How do you see those things tie together? Well, I think the primary question people are asking today is not, is Christianity true? They're asking, is Christianity good? Hmm. More importantly, is God good? Mm-hmm. So a lot of people won't even entertain questions about the resurrection, the reliability of scriptures, the existence of God, if in the back of their mind they think, well, Christians are just bigots. Mm-hmm. It's an antiquated book that just frankly doesn't understand how love has changed today. Hmm. So I, I think it's kind of a preliminary question, and frankly, it's the elephant in the room. Everywhere mm-hmm. I go, Christian mm-hmm. audiences, uh, at camps, conferences, 
uh, when I was speaking up at Berkeley, <laughs> speaking to Christians and non-Christians, mm-hmm. one of the top questions relates to gender, sexuality, marriage, and how Christians think about this. So if Christians in apologetics were making a case positively for the gospel, but removing roadblocks, so to speak. And this mm-hmm. is one of the biggest roadblocks that people have. So I think apologists need to keep, I think apologists need to do two things. Number one, we need to deal with the essential issues, even if people aren't asking them. Resurrection, deity of Christ, mm-hmm. liability scriptures, problem of evil. But then there are certain issues of the day that are pressing. Yeah. We have to address those as well. And I think marriage and sexuality is really that pressing topic right now. Definitely, definitely. Not only a very uh, a polarizing issue, a um, very sensitive one, and I think as uh, as Christian ambassadors, we need to be able to address these things in a way that's uh, both charitable and, you know, where we stick to our convictions, but have compassion just like Jesus did when he, when he spoke to people. Um, on this show, we've done uh, shows on the New Testament scriptures about this, the Old Testament scriptures, and then we've had people on just to talk about their stories, people like Wesley Hill, people like uh, David Bennett from when he was working with Ravi Zacharias, uh, Rosaria Butterfield, um, a variety of people, Chris, uh, Christopher Yuan. And so hearing these people, hearing their stories, I think is, is a good first step in, in developing some of that compassion. Because I think a lot of Christians have this tension that they feel, right? There's a tension between um, holding your convictions on one hand and then um, engaging with compassion on the other. How do you help people put those things together? Well, I think you're right that we need to hear the story of people like Christopher Yuan and Wesley Hill, Christians with same-sex attraction. Mm -hmm. I think we also need to hear the story of people with same-sex attraction who define themselves as gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, who aren't even Christians. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes Christians have the perception that that every single person with same-sex attraction has this agenda to destroy marriage, hmm. to destroy the church, and that's just simply a straw man. Mm-hmm. There are activists like that. They have a lot of money. They have a lot of influence. They have time, and they have power and incentive, and they're the ones actively changing the culture. In my experience, a lot of people that I've talked to want the same things, broadly speaking, that you and I do. They want relationships, they want freedom, education, opportunity, and sometimes just hearing the story of even non-Christians gives us a compassion and helps us to not see the other as the enemy. So it's vital to sit down to Christians and people on all sides of this Mm -hmm. issue. But I'd also say to add to this, I'm glad that you guys have had stories on the table, but also theology and philosophy, because our culture hasn't been changed primarily by philosophical arguments for same-sex marriage. It's been changed by story. Yeah, It's been changed by seeing people. And that's why one of our best ways to push back gently is to just tell stories as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, when we take a look at this, the situation we find ourselves in, you mentioned the, uh, the case um, that, that legalized same-sex marriage in the United States. Um, people wonder, how do we even get here? Uh, you wrote a piece for an upcoming uh, book that's going to be published um, talking about this. Can you kind of share with us how we got to this place in our society? Well, this is a huge, huge question that we can unpack for the rest of the podcast and beyond. And there's also different ways we can look at this. We can look at how technology has shaped this. Mm -hmm. We can look at how views of human nature shape this, theological, philosophical shifts. There's a lot of different angles by which we can approach this question. And I would first, in that chapter of the book, as well as in the book Same-Sex Marriage, 
I start off by rather than pointing fingers at secularists or people outside, I think the church needs to pause mm-hmm. and we need to look within mm-hmm. and ask ourselves how have we contributed to this. I think it's only when we do this that we'll be gracious towards other people, we'll be appropriately broken, and we'll be humble. So it's not lost on the wider world that pornography, for example, is a massive issue within the church. Many people don't talk about it. Many people don't address it. It's not lost on the wider culture that divorce is a massive issue within the church. And without parsing the biblical justifications for divorce, it's certainly the case that when it comes to most, if not many, Christian churches, it's okay to get divorced and remarried and nobody questions it. But same-sex marriage is unequivocally condemned, and yet the Scripture has some pretty strong things to say Mm -hmm. about divorce. So I think some of this, we need to look inside a church and say, have we been living out marriage? Have we been teaching marriage? Have we been telling stories of marriage to the culture? Have we been modeling marriage for our neighbors? Mm -hmm. So I think we need to first look within and and ask ourselves where we failed and repent before we point fingers. Mm -hmm. But of course, Mm -hmm. that's not the whole story of how marriage has changed. I think if we go back, really, this story is at least a century and a half old, if not older. Now, this surprises people because it felt like in a span of maybe two to three years, this rapidly changed. And I don't think we've had a quicker cultural change on an issue I can think of than on the issue of same-sex marriage and homosexuality. But these changes have been brewing for decades and decades and decades and a century plus. I would even take it back to the 1800s when you have this secular movement and a change in what it means to be human. So John and I laid this out in the book that we used to think of human beings in a religious sense, that human beings, how we answer the big questions of life. Is there a God? Is there a life after death? Is there a meaning to life? Define who we are. But that really started to change around the time of Darwin, where now there's nothing fixed about human nature. We're not on a religious search. We are evolving and changing and adapting over time. We're just complex animals. Mm-hmm. And you have other thinkers come along like Freud, and Freud starts to argue, you know, now you're into the 20th century, things like it's actually sexual sexual repression is bad, hmm. and you should live out these sexual inclinations and proclivities that you have. And this idea of boundaries and guidelines given by a god is too simplistic and it's destructive. And then Margaret Sanger, another deeply influential thinker who founded Planned Parenthood, starts to argue ideas like actually liberation and salvation is found through sex and sexuality. So it's no longer not just a repression, salvation is found in it. We have thinkers like Hugh Hefner who -hmm. start to talk about, no, it's actually the good life that's getting away from biblical commands and guidelines and truths and just live according to whatever feels right to you. You see this explode in the time of Hugh Hefner. Now, there's a a ton of other thinkers that I've left out here, and there's also some technological change. Like, I think arguably, I can't think of any technology that's done more to change how we view the purpose of sexuality than the pill. Hmm. And we don't have to have the debate about whether Christians should have birth control or not. We can come back on another podcast and talk (laughs) about that later. But regardless of reviews on that, the pill essentially permanently separated sex from procreation. 
And it launches this sexual revolution that we are still feeling the repercussions of today. So I think we go back really 150 Mm. years, Mm. what it means to be human, how we view relationships, how we view marriage, how we view sexuality, how we view the good life. Mm -hmm. There have been changes brewing for a long time that really came to an eclipse in the past three or four years around the time of the Obergefell decision. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, I like how you started out that um, your answer with with turning the uh, attention inward first, taking a look at what is it in the church that we need to um, repent of, that we need to take a second look at. And there's a, a great tradition in the Judeo Christian uh, uh, tradition of looking inwards, like the Jewish prophets. You think of the Jewish prophets; these people were pro-Israel, but they had no problem critiquing themselves and calling for repentance. And I think that's that's just fair and right to do, to start. Um, but we have seen some of the, the Christian influence um, weighing in society, and we've seen some of these um, naturalistic kinds of um, uh, philosophies and, and thinking influence the way uh, many people think about sex. Now, you use the term natural marriage, and I find that very interesting. Can you unpack the, the term natural marriage for us? Yeah, I've thought a lot about what term I would use to describe same-sex marriage. And I've heard some terms that I just wouldn't use because I think they're unnecessarily offensive to people. Like, I've heard the term pseudo-marriage used. And I actually think there's some accuracy in that, but I don't use that term with people when I'm discussing it because immediately walls go up. Yeah, And I also don't talk about same-sex marriage because that that implies – that a same-sex union is actually a marriage. Mm-hmm. I don't think that it is. Mm-hmm. I really don't think that it's marriage. I think marriage is something, we'll come back to this, theologically and philosophically and biologically, is the union of one man and one woman in a committed relationship for life. So a man and a man cannot get married. We can give them a marriage certificate. We can call that that relationship a marriage but it's simply not a marriage. So I use the term, I I don't use the term traditional marriage because that also carries baggage Hmm. that, well, you just believe in it because it's been tradition and all that goes with kind of using the term tradition and traditional. I believe in tradition, but I'm trying to think of a term that is at least least offensive and most accurate. And I found that natural marriage does that because it's saying that there's something about within nature itself There's something true about the kind of thing that marriage is, and we're not actually just coming up with this. We're not defining it. We can't define or redefine marriage. We are recognizing something that's already there. Hmm. So gravity is already there. Certain biological sexual differences are already there, and a marriage is a kind of union that we don't come up with and invent. We recognize is something that exists. So I just found the term natural marriage has the least baggage. It's the most accurate and it invites the question many times in conversation, what do you mean by natural? Mm-hmm. And then we can talk about natural law. Yeah, interesting. And so you're driving towards this idea of is there a God who created people, who created everything really, to function in a certain way? And if if there is a God, then there is a way things should be, right? Because if there's no God, then there is no should. If everything was just matter behaving according to law and, and random chance, then, then there is no should. How do you, um, do you see this uh, driving toward the moral argument as well, too? 
Well, there's kind of two ways to look at this. Number one, if there is no God, I think Dostoevsky is right. All is permissible. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, and again, as Hume said, you can't get an ought from an is. So when it's all said and done, if there is no God, then marriage is up to us, which is why Genesis begins with, in the beginning, God created. If something is created, it has a purpose and a design, a way it's supposed to be lived out, which is why I think the creation-evolution debate is so hot and sensitive, is because people kind of sense, wait a minute, either we've been designed to live a certain way, or we get to come up with whatever that way is we want to live. We get to write the rules. So when it's all said and done, whether there is a God or not, really is at the heart of the question. But I don't start there when I'm making a case or when I'm speaking with people. I'm just simply saying, is there something – so that's kind of a top-down way to look at it. Mm -hmm. When I talk about natural marriage, I want to say, is there a bottom-up way, which ultimately leads to God but doesn't begin there? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. is there something fixed about the way the world operates? Is there something fixed about where children come from mm -hmm. and where children are best raised and gender differences. Yeah, we are recognizing something exists. However, it got there is secondary, whether it's evolution or God created us. There is something fixed within nature that we don't come up with. We recognize it. Mm -hmm. And then that begs the question, okay, if there is design, if there is some kind of purpose in nature, where did this come from? Mm -hmm. So that's the question that follows up from it. But somebody doesn't have to technically believe in God to recognize that there is certain in inherent purposes and processes within nature, just like your heart is best functions when it pumps blood, and that's how it's supposed to operate. Well, the same is true with families and with kids and with marriage. Mm -hmm. So I'm inviting that question in a preliminary fashion, although it does lead to, like you said, the ultimate question, is there a designer? Is there a purpose? Is there really a God? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's a good distinction to make. So there's the uh, worldview level where you can come top down, and then there's the can we just see in the in the created order um, that these That's things right. are not things we that marriage isn't something we just made up as a society where we can just change the rules whenever we want, um, but it's something that we recognize, something we discover that's already there. Sometimes, uh, you know, my wife went to a, a wedding where people like to write their own uh, vows and. At this wedding, the vows were like, I like you. You like me. We can have a lot of fun together. <laughs> like, are you guys promising anything to each other? And, and, but it seems like um, this kind of mentality allows us to just rewrite the rules for, for anything. And, and truly, if there is uh, no God, no creator, no way things should be, then why can't we just rewrite the rules for something we made up? but we're discovering um, something that's actually there in nature that God has put there. You talk about natural rights. Can I jump oh, in here real sure. fast before I go back to that? Because you, you spurred something on this story of how we got to uh, same-sex marriage, mm -hmm. is this sense of deep individualism so profoundly embedded in our culture, which I think has secular roots, that there's no source outside of me guiding and directing how I'm supposed to live. This meaning and purpose comes from within. So if it feels right, do it. If I want to do it, do it. In fact, Anthony Kennedy famously did this in Supreme Court ruling. He said each individual has the right to define his own sense of meaning, existence, and purpose mm -hmm. in the universe. Wow. So we have shifted from discovering truth outside of us mm -hmm. to 
creating truth internally within. And this is a shift that's taken a long time to get there. This is why we see the challenge of gender. We've seen the challenge of marriage. As long as I feel this is true for me on moral and particular sexual issues, then it's true for me because the individual is utterly autonomous. I think that's the underlying worldview, that if people don't see that and they just make arguments against, say, same-sex marriage or for natural marriage, they don't understand the underlying issues beneath it, they're not going to make any progress at all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that's right. And I think there is a little bit of uh, some, some of the postmodern thought in our culture that has seeped in where you can create your own reality through the way that you use language, through the way that you uh, think about yourself, um, which also gets us into the discussion of, of gender identity versus biological sex and things like that. That's how you can have a, a transgender man win a girl's dash, for example, right? And then there's lots of discussion about that. If you could give me a quick... Um, a quick definition of what you mean by a natural rights when we ask the question is same-sex marriage a natural right we'll come back after the break and discuss that yeah simply i'm asking the question is there a right within nature itself that i don't create so i would say that there's certain rights that are pre-political mm-hmm. the government doesn't invent them the government recognizes them so it's a right to life you could argue a right to privacy. But I also say a right for a kid to know his mom and his dad, mm-hmm. all things being equal. So if you apply that to marriage, marriage is not something the government invents. Marriage is something the government recognizes. It's a pre-political institution at the heart of any well-functioning society. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. But right now, I want to take a look at, you talk about two ways to do this. One, there's the biblical case that we can make. Then there's the case that we can make um, in the public square without starting with the Bible. So let's start with the biblical case in terms of how do we know what the Bible actually teaches about uh, marriage? Because you've been to um, seminars where people are are saying the Bible teaches the opposite of what we believe the Bible teaches about marriage. Um, How do we build the biblical case, Sean? Well, the first thing you realize is the Bible begins with a marriage, a wedding, Hmm. specifically in Genesis chapter 2, a man shall cling to his wife, not to a woman, his wife. It's Hmm. talking about a marriage. And the Bible ends with a marriage, referring to God, in particular Jesus, and his bride. So weddings, marriages matter profoundly in the Scripture. Mm -hmm. I think the best place to go, since we're looking at questions of design, is back to Genesis. If you look in Genesis chapter 1, first chapter in the Bible, we're told that God made male and female in his image. He says, populate and fill the earth. 
So male and female both reflect the image of God, equal image bearers, and they're commanded and blessed, I would argue, multiply and fill the earth. Skip to Genesis chapter 2. I think where it hones down specifically on day 6 in the creation of male and female. It says, A man shall leave his father and mother, cling to his wife, and the two shall become one. Now notice something. The man leaves his father and mother, Mm -hmm. so the household is not his father and mother's. Hmm. It's not his father and his father. Hmm. There's a pattern here reflecting Genesis 1, given the commandment to procreate and fill the world that says the household is meant to be one man and one woman. Now, of course, the patriarchs and others failed to live this. That just shows that God uses failed people. That's a different point. And so when the man leaves his father and mother, the implication is he'll cling to his wife, and they will continue this pattern of having children and filling up the earth. Now, marriage is about much more than having kids, but it is about no less than having kids. That's one of the functions of marriage is procreation. Now, some people say, well, that's the Old Testament, that's Genesis. I'll say, well, if that's the case, and Jesus didn't get the memo. (laughs) If you go to Matthew chapter 19, Jesus asked a question about divorce. So he's not asked about same-sex marriage or homosexuality. He's asked about, and I would argue because that's because we know exactly what Jesus believed about this. There was no debate from the left to the right. But he's asked about divorce. So we're in the realm of marriage. And what does he do? He cites Genesis 1. He says, this is verses 3 through 4. He says, God made them male and female. And then he cites Genesis chapter 2. Basically saying God leaves his father and mother, clings to his wife, the two shall become one. And Jesus says what God put together, let not man separate. Now here's the interesting question when you look biblically. To answer the question about divorce— What's all that Jesus needed to answer the question, Genesis 1 or Genesis 2? The answer is he only needed Genesis 2. What God puts together, let them not separate. Mm -hmm. But rather, what does Jesus do? He cites Genesis 1, which is the creation account that God made them male and female. It's as if Jesus is going out of his way, emphasizing the point that marriage is a gendered institution. Hmm. And it's meant to be one man, one woman, for life. Now, we see that passage cited in Ephesians chapter 5 and in other chapters throughout the scripture, and the underlying assumption is always that God's creation account back at the beginning is still normative for how we're supposed to live and the function and purposes of marriage. Now, much more can be said, but I like to go back to the person of Jesus because mm-hmm. everybody wants a piece of Jesus, yeah. and I think Jesus is pretty clear in terms of what he thinks about marriage. Yeah, no, I think that's a great, great place to start is to just hone in on Jesus and what did Jesus think. If you hold the perspective of Jesus, um, in our society, it's getting less maybe, but I I have not come up with, uh, you know, in a conversation with somebody where they say, Jesus is just wrong on that one, you know? (laughs) Jesus, uh, no one says Jesus is a homophobic bigot, you know? They always want to say Jesus believes pretty much what they believe. And so I think showing what Jesus believed about marriage is a great way into the conversation about what the Bible teaches. Now, we talk about how the, the, the scriptures can um, show us very, very clearly what, the, you know, what Jesus um, thinks about this. But when we talk about public square conversations, you want to start um, somewhere else. How do you start with uh, public square conversations? 
Well, that depends on whether I'm on a forum or some kind of debate or in a personal conversation. So if I'm in a personal conversation, I'm typically going to ask questions and listen more than I'm just going to make a lot of statements, Mm -hmm. especially if I sense that the person holds a view different than my own. I'll just probably ask questions like, what do you think marriage is? Hmm. How do you think we know what marriage is? And someone's going to give an answer. Well, it's two people who love each other. Then I'll probably just say, could two brothers who love each other get married? What about all the marriages throughout history of people who actually didn't love each other? (laughs) (laughs) It would be news to them that they're not married. I would just ask questions and not trying to catch the person, but I find the best conversations are really listen to people, understanding what they're coming from. And my assumption is that any worldview apart from the Christian one at some point is going to self-destruct, some point is going to be incoherent, some point is going to be contradictory. And I look at it like this. Here's my favorite illustration. If you take a beach ball and you push it underwater, it's going to keep popping back up. Mm-hmm. Well, atheists, secularists, people who don't believe in natural marriage still live in god's world and their worldview tries to push down certain things about gender about marriage etc about culture but it keeps popping itself up so i'm a conversation but i just ask a lot of questions and look for these tension points and just ask well how do you make sense of this and oftentimes i learn a lot listen have a good conversation i found most people are willing to talk if you just treat them the way that you would want them to treat you so that's how i interact with people personally mm-hmm. uh if you want me to do you want me to make the case what i would do like publicly if i was in a debate like how i would present it is that what you mean yeah there's a there's a little three-step approach that uh okay i've seen you talk about and maybe we just walk through each one of those steps um because there's Perfect. some pretty self-evident things um that you talk about that we kind of have to to start there in a place that might not be so obvious Gotcha. And I love that you said self-evident because I sent out a tweet not long ago quoting John Wooden who said the best way a man can love his kids is to love his kid's mom. Hmm. I tweeted that. I thought that was powerful. Mm -hmm. Somebody said, wait a minute, are you saying kids need a mom and a dad? How arbitrary. (laughs) And you, you rightly chuckled. So did I. But I thought we'd come to the point where some very common sense Mm -hmm. things are no longer common sense to an increasing group of people, we actually have to flush this out. So the first step is, and I didn't come up with this, Maggie Gallagher came up with this, so I want to give her full credit, but I love the three steps that she gives. Mm -hmm. Number one is that sex makes babies. Sex makes babies. Now, rightly, you and I laugh and go, okay, step two. But just recently, I saw that the Babylon Bee, which is this satirical Mm -hmm. fake newspaper, said they put out this study that said, New study from the government reveals that those who have sex are more likely to get pregnant. (laughs) (laughs) And I laugh so hard because we've come so far in the culture that we think sex has nothing to do with having babies. We think it's purely a recreational activity and that it's not about having kids. So the first step is just to remind people whether a kid results or not, sex by its very nature is a pro creative act our sexual organs exist towards a certain end and we don't invent that we recognize that Mm -hmm. so sex by its very nature is a procreative act sex makes babies start there Mm -hmm. and make sure that sinks in for people the second one is we'll say society needs babies 
This one tends to be a little bit less controversial, but studies actually show for a society to continue from one next one generation to the next, mm-hmm. there has to be a certain replacement rate of children. So to work enough, to financially support, to physically care for. And usually it's about 2.2, somewhere around there. Well, the problem is there's been such a devaluation of kids and an elevation of career and money and other things that countries across the world, many in Europe and in the U.S., are having less kids. So this raises dire concerns for the future, so much so that in places like Japan right now, they have such a low replacement rate that they're experimenting with robots that will care for the elderly. Hmm. They don't have enough. So if every couple has one kids, the next generation has 50% as many people. And you can see how a generation, how a culture begins to disintegrate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So sex makes babies, number two. Society really needs babies. And by the way, this is why the government has ever been interested in marriage in the first place, as opposed to like your tennis partner formalizing <laughs> that relationship. Yeah. They got marriage because it produces kids and they need kids to flourish as a government and society into the future. The third one is what gets controversial, is that babies need a mom and a dad. Babies need a mom and a dad. There is no question from the research that I've done that kids thrive the most with a mom and a dad in relationship with each other and a relationship with those kids. Now, anybody who's listening, please don't hear me say I'm criticizing single moms or single dads. I don't know how single moms and single dads do it. Many of them are my heroes. My wife and I have a hard enough time with our kids, and it's the two of us at times Mm -hmm. because they're normal kids. But I think any single mom and single dad will say, guy, it's not optimal, and it's tough. And I wish my kids had the father or the mother present in the home. Now, there's a lot of studies that are arguing that there's a no significant difference between same-sex parents and between opposite-sex parents. And I've looked at these studies in depth, Mikkel, and either they have real bias sampling the way that they do it, or the study is so small, and it's not careful. In the past two or three years, there's been a number of studies that have come out and have said, wait a minute, these kids are disadvantaged who don't have a mom and a dad. And I'm also so we all know that there's differences between males and between females. We know it. It's obvious. But we have to remind people of this and catch them in the contradiction to make the point that we know moms parent differently than dads do. Mm-hmm. So I'll give a quick example. Uh, president Obama, former president, was the first president that came out in favor of same sex marriage. Well, what's interesting is if you come out in favor of same-sex marriage, you say that moms are essentially no different than dads. Kids don't need a dad in the home. They can have two moms. They don't need a mom in the home. They can have two dads. Gender is irrelevant for the institution of marriage. It doesn't matter. But then Obama had a chance to nominate three Supreme Court justices. Two got nominated. Both of them were women, the first two. Now, why did he nominate women? He said, because they bring a different perspective. Hmm. They see the world differently. Yeah. And you see exactly where this is going. I thought, wait a minute. You can't turn around and say to marriage, gender is irrelevant because men are equivalent to women. 
And then when it comes to the Supreme Court, say, actually, we need a woman because she sees the world differently and votes differently than a man would. Mm -hmm. This is the kind of contradiction that we're seeing all over our culture right now on gender issues. And I think when it comes to case for marriage, sex makes babies. Society needs babies. Babies need a mom and a dad. And mm -hmm. I could talk about it. We could go in depth if you want to. But there are different ways that moms and dads parent and contribute to the development of your kids. But I think probably most listeners recognize it because most of those ways are pretty obvious. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in a, in a same-sex relationship, if you have children growing up in that kind of home, it's, it seems kind of difficult to imagine how they could uh, begin to appreciate the diversity that is inherent in a, a male and a female, you know, mom and dad um, run home because you can see how a woman parents differently, how a man parents differently. Why don't you uh, just share a couple of, of things that, that we can see um, how mom and dad's parent differently? Well, yeah, I think that's right. And, and anyone listening to this is going to get who's probably not a Christian, doesn't hold this view of marriage, gets so offended and gets so angry and personal attacks. I've received so many personal attacks for this. Hmm. And I'm just asking the question, what's best for kids? Mm -hmm. I've asked people that are active. I said, are you going to really look me in the face and say that two dads are equivalent to the emotional, physical, and relational needs of a daughter as a husband and a wife? Are you really going to dig in your heels and concede that? And they have to because of their position. But I know deep inside the heart, a lot of people know, man, kids need a mom and a dad. And again, that's not to downplay people who grow up with single parents. And I'm also not saying that gays and lesbians can't be good dads and good moms. Mm -hmm. I think sexual orientation is irrelevant to whether you're a good mom or to whether you're a good dad. That is not my point. But you better believe I have three kids. My son is 14, my daughter's 11, and I have a son who's five. Mm -hmm. I relate to my son who's 14. I have a deeper voice. I'm bigger. <laughs> I set certain bigger than my son and my wife. I can set certain boundaries and have a certain authority. It's harder for my wife to have. And also my daughter who's 11, who's a preteen. My mm -hmm. wife understands and gets certain things, mm -hmm. how her body is changing, her emotions are changing. I don't get it. I'm like, you handle this one. I got nothing here. <laughs> and yet I also know how teenage boys think. Yes. And I can see things. Maybe my wife doesn't. Mm -hmm. And also relate to my daughter as a man should. Mm -hmm. So this is back to the way God designed the family to be. So I actually, we often hear that if you're not in favor of same-sex marriage, you're bigoted and you're hateful and love should win out. I don't think there's any truth behind that, but that's a rhetorically powerful argument. I actually think if we start by saying what's best for kids, what's really loving, then there's no way you can make a case that we shouldn't be in favor of the government doing everything it can to preserve and restore mm -hmm. and strengthen natural marriage. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. You know, you talked earlier about um, the the pornography and uh, technology just in you know. Um, 
influencing these things. And I know in Japan, there's a problem where kids don't even want to have sex anymore. They just want to use their computers and、uh, consume pornography instead because it's too much commitment to have another person in your life. And, and that's why you know, they have these issues now with not enough young people to. To care for the aging、uh, population. And so it's really sad.、Um, but I think what I'm, what I'm detecting here in, the, in the, the shift of presentation is rather than starting with the Bible in the public square and, and saying, you know, it's true because it's in the Bible, that we shift our perspective a bit and help people to see that's in the Bible. It's in the Bible because it's actually true. And then we see that in the created order, that God has showed us,、um, shown us these things in the created order.、Um, if you're having a conversation with somebody,、um, think about, let's say, a pastor. How can a pastor be more sensitive toward this topic、um, with people who come to the church, maybe a, a same sex couple that comes to the church to check it out,、uh, maybe、um, people who are in the church now who are、um, same sex attracted or actually in a same sex relationship? How, how can pastors be more sensitive on this issue? I think pastors need to ask two questions. Number one, am I willing to Teach biblically and clearly what scripture teaches about marriage. That's the first thing a pastor has to do.、Mm-hmm. There are a lot, of, a, a lot of people who are gay who've talked to me and said, I go to conservative churches because they preach the gospel. I know where they stand on marriage,、mm-hmm. so gracious and loving, but I want to hear the Bible actually taught. I find that interesting. I think there's a lot of pastors who feel like if I really lay out biblical truth, I'm going to turn people away. I think that's a mistake. On a number of levels. Now, we shouldn't go out of our way to hammer that more than we do gossip or greed or all the other issues Scripture talks about. But pastors much, must clearly teach on this issue unequivocally, as they must life and other issues as well.、Mm-hmm. So I don't think what turns people away is the biblical teaching. This is what progressives have been arguing. You need to soften the message,、mm-hmm. and the mainline church has faded, and the conservative church has stayed strong. So, we don't need to change our message necessarily to be inviting. But I do see a lot of pastors who speak on this and set up a church, and they really haven't done their homework. They really don't understand issues like can you be born gay? They haven't really thought through questions of the language that they use and how that language can just influence somebody and shape that person negatively. They haven't. Carefully, they haven't had enough conversation with people to just hear their stories. So they speak with compassion when they approach this topic.、Mm-hmm. So I, I think I would love it if pastors, anyone listening, I guarantee you, you have people with same sex attraction in your church, gays and lesbians. Take them out to lunch and just ask them, say, tell me, tell me your story. When did you first uncover you had same sex attraction? Who's the first person you came out with? How did people treat you? What are things people did well? What are things that were not helpful? What do you see us doing as a church that's helpful? What things could we get better at? And you might not agree with everything the person says, just like you wouldn't agree with everything somebody says on any issue.、Mm-hmm. That listening posture is an inviting way to get people to even just consider the ministry of, of the church. And also, really to learn, gosh, here's something I need to get better at. So, to answer your question, I think every pastor just t a k e people in their church out for lunch and just ask them and just listen. And don't be quick to judge, just try to understand. And I think a lot of eyes will be open to things we as a church can do better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I agree. I think I know people who have left the church and 
they've found more love in the gay community versus in the the church where they were. And I think mm-hmm. we can we can be more loving um, than the gay community that rejects the Bible because uh, one we have Jesus as our example, and Jesus spoke with conviction and compassion. And so we don't have to give up our biblical stance in order to love people well, because Jesus was able to do that, um, to, to have conviction and compassion. You know, something we don't do well, Mikkel, is we don't support singles in the church right. well at all. Yes. Whether they are gay or not mm-hmm. gay, we don't support them well. The narrative is, come to the gay community, we love you just as you are, you'll fit in, and we'll help you have everything you desire. The Christian narrative, whether we intend or not, is we're suspect of that. We're going to condemn it as sin. You've got to come and be celibate, and we'll all be suspicious of you in the church because you're not married for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. This is the narrative many people experience. Mm-hmm. No mm-hmm. wonder many people leave the church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for those who lapse back into sinful behavior, I know it's loneliness a lot of times, people have told me. And so we do need to... to focus on how are we ministering to single people, not just uh, gay single people, but but all single people as well. And so right. I think what we've seen in this conversation, Sean, is that we can uh, minister with, with conviction and compassion, that we can make a case for biblical marriage um, in the public square, in the public square without using the Bible, but we also have that um, biblical case that can strengthen our convictions. So thank you so much for being uh, a part of this conversation, Sean. Um, where can somebody go to find out more about how they can get trained on uh, responding to this topic? Probably the best place would just go to seanmcdowell.org. I'm on Twitter, and I don't try to waste your time with funny cat images, but I'll put <laughs> artic- articles that are helpful and resources. Um, my website, I have a ton of videos, including some on this topic. Uh, the book Same Sex Marriage would probably be helpful as well, as well as the book coming out with Moody Academic that deals with a host of different issues on marriage. Yeah, and you have a chapter in there called "Natural Defending Natural Marriage." Is that correct? Affirming natural marriage. Affirming yeah. natural marriage. Very good. Well, thank you once again, Sean, for being with us on the table. Thanks for having me, Mikhail. And we hope that you will join us back on the table once again, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus Podcast. Two clergy of different traditions, Father Andrew Stephen Damick, and Michael Landsman discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.